0: Welcome to the Open Government Podcast. I'm Richard Pietro,
1: and I'm Samir Vasta. As always, each episode of the Open Government Podcast brings you an interview with someone working on open government or citizen engagement in their community.
0: And today we have Peggy Tayon, the president and CEO of the Canadian Council on Social Development, which has been serving Canadians since 1920. Peggy also founded the Hera Mission of Canada, whose goal is to empower women and children in Kenya, particularly those communities that have been ravaged by HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and poverty. Now, Peggy, you're clearly engaged locally, nationally, internationally, and I'm wondering if you found any common threads between engaged citizens.
2: Absolutely. I think that um, some of the things that you see that are truly unifying, regardless of whether you're working at the local level in your own neighborhood or doing work nationally or or in the Global Village is that there's uh, a group of individuals who recognize that um, their community, their nation, uh, the, the, the space that they live, work and play, um, maybe has lost its place or they see problems that they feel um, perhaps they're not um, seeing the kinds of leadership or the kinds of approaches that are making an impact. And they see within themselves um, the way forward, the way to kind of problem solve and get involved and get their hands dirty. Um, and uh, who better to kind of solve local pro- problems or local issues than, than local folks living on the ground, right? So that's one of the things that I think um, truly unifies uh, community development is, you know, an, an engaged citizenry who gets that together we can solve problems big and big and small. We can make differences big and small. You know, um, a number of people have, have um, and talked a lot about the work that I do in, in Kenya in particular after adopting my son. And I always say that um, you can change a life. Uh, we can all change a life and you don't have to go to another continent and and go on a you know on a journey to adopt a child and change adoption laws and all that kind of stuff. You can actually do it on the curb on your street, helping a neighbor who's isolated or elderly, um, helping someone with childcare. It's it's you know it's the small and the big that actually define the fabric of communities. Well, I'd like
0: to sort of change a little bit here because you've worked with so many different kinds of governments, and obviously this is the Open Government Podcast. Here, have you found that Obviously, corruption is not country-specific. We have examples here in Montreal and other countries as well. But are you finding that those values of collaboration and working with government, both the political and the the public service, has become a a growing trend, both locally and internationally?
2: That's a great question. You know, I think that um, there's a couple things that happen there, right? So I I think that... um there are governments who will disengage you by design, right? They will create a level of cynicism and toxicity, um, and hope that by that action will keep progressive folks away or folks who are kind of diff- you know, who have different values, perhaps, than the government of the day. So they almost try and alienate you away from the kind of dominant message. Um, while at the same time trying to kind of split the progressive vote out there. So stay away from the polls, don't engage. It's all nonsense what you hear in QP over, you know, the, you know every afternoon and that sort of thing. And so there's all of these, these things at play. And then there's also this level of, you know, people having incredibly um, busy, busy lives, right? So there's also this element of, of distraction in, in our citizenry. Out there, right? So um, all of these things kind of play into that broader um, umbrella of apathy, and apathy is is so destructive because it, um, you know, if if governments um, do have engaged citizenry, then they can they can and have we all know this, um, you know, they they can kind of run amok. They can do things that are not necessarily in the best interest of of their citizenry Um, and i don't want to paint a a broad brush about that i mean we we you know i i philosophically may not agree with a particular government um, philosophy or approach but i respect the fact that it is their role and it is their way Um, and as long as they're not weakening our country our social fabric um, fair game they won the election they're the government Um, i think that corruption is one of those interesting forces that is so multi-leveled, right? So you've got, in Kenya, for example, you've got that um, corruption in the civil service where civil servants are paid incredibly poorly um, and and are working in, in, um, you know, very archaic environments where um, it's everything is a big push up up a hill to make small small gains, and their day to day job can be really really challenging. Um, you know things that we take for granted in Canada, for example, you know a, in the civil service here um, would be a gift to them as far as kind of infrastructure and that sort of thing. Many peop- many of the civil servants in Canada, including the in Kenya, including police, um, are living in conditions that would rival a slum. Right. So so they will they will seek um, bribe, bribe is bribe is even hard for me to say, but they will seek financial support <laughs> um, when to try and uh, move something along for folks. So you're kind of helping them help you sort of thing. Right. Um, that's very different that, from that kind of widespread big sea corruption that happens within government officials uh, where, you know, millions of dollars are exchanged for favors. Um, And there are unbelievable stories um, out of Kenya and and other countries, certainly Canada, um, where, you know, um, millions and millions and millions of dollars, um, you know, magically disappeared. um, (laughs) Magically. Magically disappeared (laughs) and found their way into some tropical island you know, numbered bank account, right? So that's the that's the that's the more destructive stuff, particularly in developing countries, because we all know what the needs are at the, uh, on the ground and how um, pervasive and catastrophic poverty can be for their citizens, right? So it's it it even feels worse in those countries. Now, the thing I would say about you know corruption in in North America. Uh, and I thought a lot about this because i've been you know because I kind of live in two different um hemispheres uh um you know the, the kinds of corruption here may not be as obvious and it and it's a different kind of corruption where it's it's it may not necessarily be so much monetary as it is you know um exchanging favors um that that give you power and position and um and a lot of it, you know, we, we've seen a lot of it, well, it, you know, it, for example, in Montreal within the construction industry and other industries. So so we know it's there and it's it's not as obvious and, and it takes a, a much longer time to suss that stuff out. And so you're into kind of two generations before you really understand that the destructive impact of that kind of corruption um but it's just as bad right it's just as bad and it's just not as obvious to us so we and and i think that there because you know again going back to that narrative that governments build there is that oh they're all the same and you can't trust politicians therefore you can't trust governments and and then we all know that you know many governments our government in particular these days bashes civil servants right
1: So Peggy, you've worked a lot and you've alluded to a lot of your work in marginalized communities, whether that's in Canada or in Kenya or all around the world. And one of the discussions we don't always have in the open government space is around these marginalized communities, especially people without access, whether that's access to to resources or access to connection or access just access to voice how do we bridge that access gap what should the government be doing what should the community be doing what kinds of work are you already doing in, in kind of bridging those access gaps
2: uh, that's a great question i think that what that that the answers lie within marginalized communities themselves and one of the things that cc you know we've been around for 95 years and we've you know, through that time, obviously, have shifted significantly, Our both our understanding of Canada, our approach, that sort of thing. And I think one of the things that I really like about CCSD these days is that we've recognized that you build, you can build thoughtful, evidence-based national policy, but you need to do it from the ground up instead of the top down. So we were very much like... Um, uh, government in some ways, right? Historically, where it was all top-down, we'll give you the best evidence, you know, the evidence, we'll write the white papers, we'll give you the, here's the best policy from our perspective, and we'll translate it, down. And what we've learned is that you actually learn more And get make a greater impact if you do it the other way. And then the policies that ultimately get established from that experience um, are get much more traction or much more relevant, and are much more change oriented in the direction that communities really need to see. That's you know to need to kind of um, get set on fire and, and become alive. And I'll give you a good example in Renfrew County. Just um, uh, you know, the uh, rural part of um, of our our region here, just west of Ottawa, is a really large geographical um, uh, part in a, and a uh, beautiful part of the world. And there, they've um, there was a group of providers who had come to us to ask us to do some work with them around addictions and mental health. And what they wanted to do was actually look at how they could improve the system. And I know that you know, they really kind of thought a bit about an approach that was very driven by the service providers, right? And I said, you know, the only way that we would get involved is if it was really driven by people with lived experience and that we actually really learned from their experience and then um, created improvements to the system based on that lived experience, so we actually did this really interesting session, 140 people showed up, and we did this experiential mapping from the point of kind of coming into the system, living in the community, and then moving out of maybe the formal service system to housing and that sort of thing, employment. Um, And some of the things that we, and and I know that the service providers were, were certainly thinking that we were going to develop something, some proposals that they would bring forward to the regional health authority and the government around increasing funding. But if you looked at it through the lived experience lens, they didn't really care about that. What they actually wanted was to feel welcomed. They wanted to feel like they were part, truly part of a community, that they mattered, that their lives and their lived experience mattered because they actually felt very stigmatized and very um, isolated in their community because in a small community, let's face it, people know who you are. And so if the police have shown up at your apartment several times and you've been seen out uh, you know, at odd hours um, doing what's perceived as kind of, you know, odd behavior, you're going to get labeled and, and people will start to avoid you and you're certainly not going to get a job and that sort of thing, right? So what's been really cool about this is that um, what where, we, where I think the service providers thought we'd go with it was absolutely, um, you know, we went a completely different direction. And what we ended up doing was doing a lot of public awareness and public engagement around stigma and educating people about mental health. And the cool thing about that is that you can establish policy, Around that, you can also, you know, create a platform for public awareness and engagement, um, and it can become national because other communities can literally take that up. And it was totally grassroots. And so, what it would look, you know, what it looked like in Renfrew County would look very, very different in Nanaimo or, or you know, Halifax or Saint John.
0: And this, you know, fantastic work you you guys have been able to do, and you in particular. Peggy has have been able to do. And I think the one common thread going back to my original question about the engaged citizen is if you're able to create that environment where a citizen will feel as though they're a valued citizen, that they are welcomed, then that's how you are able to create that 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 critical mass. And um, that is so very important. And thank you so much for sharing those experiences with us here today. And please don't stop your work, especially the work internationally you've been doing.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it, well, it's incredibly rewarding. And, I, you know, for me personally, I just keep learning from it.
0: That was Peggy Talon from
1: Ottawa, Ontario on the Open Government Podcast. If you have any questions about today's episode, you can reach Peggy over on Twitter at Heramission or on either of her websites, heramission.org or ccsd.ca. And, of course, you can always send us a question on our hashtag at OGT Pod. Thanks as always to Keith McDonald of Cheryl's Crush for providing the intro and outro music.
0: And until next time, I'm Richard Pietro. And I'm Samir Vasta.
1: Thanks again for listening and we'll be back soon with our next interview with someone in the open government community.